0: It is so, so, so good to be together. Um, we are going to be in the book of Ezra, and so why don't you take the next 10 minutes and try and find that, and as you do, let me give you a couple of quick updates before we jump into the Word. Um, uh, last Sunday, we just want to say a yay God moment. There, uh, we had more people at Crossview for Easter than we've ever had, over 1,400 people in the sanctuary between the three services, so Yay God. And uh, it's more than just the number. It's that people got to hear the story of the resurrection, that there's a living God who is moving towards us and wants to be in relationship with us. So we say yay God to that. And I want to put a second sort of push what Mike pushed so well in uh, this coming weekend. The marriage event is a great invite place. It'll be a great place to invite a friend, Um, A a couple that you know out for this thing. It is going to be a blast. Steve Wiens is truly one of the best speakers I know. So we'll have a time of listening to speaking and then we're going to have a great, great meal. And then everybody is invited to listen to Joel Hansen. Joel is, again, absolutely top of class. And so bring a friend out to it. It's going to be really good. A lot of fun. And uh, last thing. This Tuesday and the following Tuesday, from 7 to 8 here at Crossview, we're going to have what we're calling Vision Town Halls, and uh, back in January at our annual business meeting, we talked about some of the places that we feel God is calling us to, and so what we want to do is get together as a community, those who want to come and sort of um, listen to God and speak into that so that we can get more and more clarity around some of those vision pieces, what God has for us in the next one and two and five years. So I would encourage you to come out for that. It will be one hour, so we honor your time and uh, your voice into that process. We are in a series called the Wayfinding Series. We started in the beginning of September. We are getting a big-picture overview of the Bible. And we've been encouraging you to buy this Wayfinding Bible. If you can't afford it, go to the desk. We'd love to give you one. But the goal is that we, in our hearts and lives, are formed around the story of God from Genesis to Revelation and what that means and what God is doing. And uh, so for the la- this is the last Sunday in the Old Testament, Somehow Steve Weens, who's preaching next week, gets the first New Testament uh, message. But this is our last one in the Old Testament, and we're in the book of Ezra. And before we give you a little background to Ezra so that we read that with a bit of understanding, let me talk about where we've been so far in the story of God. If you go all the way back to the beginning of September, we were in Genesis 1 and 2, and we we talked about the idea that God created. There is a good and loving God that created, and he created man and woman to be in relationship with him, to care for his creation, to be in relationship to each other. And then we got to Genesis 3, and we see what's called often in the church the fall. Adam and Eve sin, and at the core of the fall was simply unbelief. Adam and Eve knew what God wanted and what God's world was designed to look like, and they decided in unbelief, not believing God, that they could do a better job than God. And the Old Testament narrative is this back and forth between belief and unbelief. Believing that God is good and a loving king and submitting to his rule and reign in that time saying, I think I can do it better on my own. And that's the story of almost every character that we saw throughout the Old Testament, whether it was Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or Moses or David or Solomon or God's people, Israel, as a whole in the Old Testament. And that brings us to Ezra. And in your Old Testament, Ezra's sort of in the middle of the Old Testament, it's before Psalms, and Ezra and Nehemiah are sort of together, and they're stories about God's people coming back from Babylonian captivity in sort of the 500s B.C. And uh, they are chronologically, along with Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, basically the story of God. These are the last books that we have in the Old Testament. And then there's 400 years of silence before we get to Jesus' coming. Ezra and Nehemiah are God's people coming back to Jerusalem, not in full freedom yet. They're sort of, certain people are allowed to go back and they're rebuilding the altar and the temple, they're rebuilding the walls, they're rebuilding the, the temple, but there's this idea that they are coming back, restoring their home. And Ezra is from the priestly line, so what we're going to read in Ezra 3 is about the altar and the temple being restored and the worship life being restored. And then Nehemiah is a layman, he's just part of Israel. And he comes in and with people begins to build the wall that went around the city. The story of Ezra is simply this. It's exiled people. People who've been displaced from their home. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. This idea of what does it mean to talk about and be people who maybe even today still experience exile. But exiled people beginning to go home. This isn't sort of a full homecoming. It's the process of going home. Ezra 3, let me pray. God... Would you please use your word to speak into our lives, and um, especially this text, God? It, it was for my soul a wrestling match to read it and hear from you, God. But I believe you have a good word for us this morning. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people. Said, Amen. This might be, by the way, if there's anybody in here expecting child. This might be our best chapter so far for some really fun, out-of-the-box names for your children. So I am going to mess up a few of the names. Let's just practice grace going into it. In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns and all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose, then Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, joined the fellowship of priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, and his son in rebuilding the altar of God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. And this is so key to what's going on. They're not only going back to the city. They're going to rebuild the altar where the sacrifices were made and they're going to rebuild the temple where Solomon's temple was because that location was sacred in and of itself. So they wanted to rebuild all of it, experience what God had commanded them to experience in that actual location. Verse 3. Even though the people were afraid, uh, even though the people, dear Lord, I'm struggling. Somebody else want to come up and read this? Even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at the old site. Then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. And we could talk a little bit often throughout this Old Testament narrative. We've been looking at how the Old Testament points towards Jesus and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which caused them to relate to God. That points towards Jesus directly and that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. This system, we don't have to be a part of anymore. We actually have Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. They celebrated the festival of shelters as prescribed in the law, sacrificing the number of burnt offerings specified for each day of the festival. They also offered the regular burnt offerings and the offerings required from the new moon celebrations and the annual festivals as prescribed by the Lord. The people also gave a voluntary offerings to the Lord. Fifteen days before the festival of shelters began, the priests had begun to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. This was even before they had started to lay the foundation of the Lord's temple. And we keep reading in verse 7. The altar is sort of begun to be restructured, now the temple. Then the people hired masons and carpenters and bought cedar logs from the people of Tyre and Sidon, paying them with food, wine, and olive oil. The logs were brought down from Lebanon mountains and floated along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to Joppa. For King Cyrus had given permission to do this. The construction of the temple of God began in mid, mid spring. Let's stop for one second. In the Old Testament, the temple it was the tabernacle before this when they were wandering. Now, the temple is where they went to meet God. In their minds, they understood it as that is where God resided. And so we go there to meet God. We come to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul says the temple is no longer a physical structure. The temple is you. Anybody who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is the temple of God. We are where God resides. And as we go out, we tell the world the story of God through how we live our lives. Let's keep reading. The of the temple of God began in mid-spring during the second year after they arrived in Jerusalem. The workforce was made up of everyone who had returned from the exile, including Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, Jeshua, son of Jehozadek, and his fellow priests, and all the Levites. The Levites, who were 21 years or older, were put in charge of rebuilding the Lord's temple. The workers at the temple of God were supervised by Jeshua and his sons and relatives, and Kadmiel and his sons, all descendants of Hodavia. They were helped in the task by the Levites of the family of Henedad. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow the trumpets and the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed the cymbals to praise the Lord just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang the song of the Lord. He is good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. That line right there is used time and time again throughout the Old Testament and it refers to the covenant love of God. That there is something special about this relationship between God and his people. Then all the people had gave a great shout, praising the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. But many of the older priests, and imagine this, these are the guys who saw Solomon's temple destroyed and are now coming back. Many of the older priests, Levites and other leaders, who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. This chapter is about the worshiping of this exiled people who are beginning to come home, but the book of Ezra talks probably more about the exile than any other book. That's the story of what is going on. People who had been displaced, and exile simply means someone displaced from their home. People who had been displaced from their home are beginning to come back. And what that journey looks like. So what I want to do in these next few minutes, and then we're going to have a little bit of a different experience here at the end of worship this morning and give ourselves a little bit more time to pray as we think about this idea of exile and closing out the Old Testament journey that we've had this this far. But I want to talk about exile in the Old Testament and then say, what does exile mean for us today? Is there a reality where it speaks to our lives as we live our lives today? So exile in the Old Testament. This idea of being displaced from your home. A friend of mine, pastor and theologian, says this about the journey of exile in the Old Testament. He says, the exile may refer to any people forced or voluntary to leave their traditional homelands. And you look at the journey of the Old Testament. As we begin to think about exile in our life, sometimes it's forced, right? Right? You have a physical element that comes upon you, and you have this sense of not feeling at home. There is sort of this spiritual, physical exile that's going on, and sometimes it's voluntary. Sometimes we choose to walk away from God, to walk away from the home where we're supposed to be, and so it's this voluntary idea of exile. He goes on to say, So it can be voluntary. Or forced, So that the exile could be a deportee, the diaspora, refugee, alien, an immigrant. And you begin to understand what this idea of exile really is. The Bible indeed is full of the exilic experience, either by forced or voluntary. And listen to some of, the, some of the examples. The expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden was forced. Abraham and his family chose to leave their own land by divine command. That was a voluntary idea of exile. Jacob fled from his own territory, and it was a combination of almost forced and voluntary. Joseph was deported from his land. He was forced out. Moses fled into the desert after his murder of the Egyptian. It was a combination of forced and voluntary. The exodus from Egypt, it was voluntary. And the Babylonian exile, it was forced. And sometimes... God sort of pushes his people into exile for a specific reason as a father dealing with his children. But exile is one of the keys in the whole narrative of the Old Testament. And it connects to that idea of belief and unbelief that there's often this journey of with God and sort of walking from God. And that's the idea of being in exile and being on the journey of walking home. So, what does it mean for us today? What does a text in a book like Ezra, which most of you probably have not read in a long time or if ever, what does it mean for us today? What does this idea of exile do for us and in our hearts? I think there's two types of exile that I want us to talk about. One is the idea of a physical exile and the other is the idea of spiritual exile. Jin Kim goes on to write in that article about exile, talking about the physical exile. He says, The exilic experience is not just the experience of ancient Israel, but the experience of many modern people. Who then are the exiles today? It could be Mexicans in the US, North Koreans in China, Tibetans in India, and so on. So when we talk about the idea of physical exile, we know it's a reality. We know around us and we know in the world around us, unless your eyes are closed to what's going on, the people are being displaced from their actual homes. And it's intriguing because the covenant denomination, which some of you, you may be new and you're like, this covenant thing is a little weird. Covenant simply came out of Swedish Lutheran roots back in the 1800s. But it came out of Swedish Lutheran immigrants. People who, in a sense, were in the journey of exile. And may never go home, so what does it look like to be exiled people and to find a home in a new land? We know the exile is true. We see stories in Africa. We see many, many situations where people are being forced out of their home. One of the conversations we're starting to engage is what does it look like to truly be in our city when there are many who are exiled in our city? Refugee populations. And I think as people of God, if we're going to talk about the idea of an exile, we have to talk about what does it mean to care for and be in relationship and partner in places where people are displaced from their home. The good news of Jesus Christ actually has a conversation in that place. So physical exile. The other part is a spiritual exile. Mark Batterson, a pastor out of Washington, D.C., says spiritual exile is simply this. It's those who have moved away from God. You think quickly of the prodigal son story. It's many of you in this room who are struggling with certain things, and you know in this area or in this way or in this way of thinking you're walking away from God. And when we talk about exile, you feel that. You feel a draw towards something else, but you know that home is with God. You're created to be in relationship with God. For a lot of you in this room, and I have this conversation often, it's somebody you know. It's a child. It's a friend. Somebody who has chosen willfully to walk away from God and is in this voluntary exile, and you're wondering, what in the world do we do to care for them and bring them back? And the beauty of the story of God is that Jesus exiled himself. Scripture tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus left home with God to come and be with us. Jesus exiled himself so that he could be the ultimate sacrifice to make us right, to reconcile us with God. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says that Jesus is the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That spiritual exile we don't have to live in because God has done for us what we could never do on our own. And just like last week, the simplicity, even though the story of God is profound, the simplicity of the invitation is to believe. To put whatever, whatever trust you can muster up into this story. I like what Fr- Frederick Buechner said in his book, Longing for Home. And this is a little bit of what we talked about last week. The idea of living in exile and longing for home is the story that we sort of just live in as people on earth because we know that the ultimate home is when God comes back and makes everything right, restores it to what it's supposed to be. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. New bodies, it's right again. It's Garden 2.0. Like We long for that, that's ultimate home. We're not there yet. We're in the land of in-between here and now. And Beekner says this, we carry inside of us a vision of wholeness that we sense is our true home that beckons us. Isn't that so true? Like we long for things to be right, to be at home. He goes on to say, woe to us if we forget the homeless ones who have no vote, no power, nobody to lobby for them, who might as well have no face. Woe to us if we forget our own homelessness, To be homeless the way people like you and me are apt to be homeless is to have homes all around us, but not really be at home in any of them. Isn't that good? Like everything can look good, but if we dig a little deeper, we feel exile in our bones. Something's not right. We're disconnected from God. We're voluntarily choosing a different way to live. And then he ends by saying, to be really at home, this is so good, to be really at home is to be really at peace. And our lives are so intrinsically interwoven that there can be no peace for any of us until there is real peace for all of us. A sense of peace connects, right? Like that's, I, I know when I'm in exile, when things aren't right, when there's a lack of peace in my soul, in my relationships, whatever it might be. And if you think about the idea of wholeness that he talks about and and really does point towards that future reality, exile is any place in us that's not whole. First service I saw a man in tears whose body is falling apart, tears down his face, come up and writes on one of the boards. And you could see that he's living in exile. The body is falling apart. Any place that's not whole. A relationship, a body that just got a diagnosis. I think Paul gets at what our journey is in this reality of dealing with we want this, but we live, all of us, in some time, not to be Debbie Downer about it, but we all have places of exile where we feel disconnected, displaced from our home with God. Paul in Romans 8 says this. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against his will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. That's exile. Whether it's you as an individual, a people group, whatever it is, this idea of groaning for things to be made whole, made right. And we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a, futa- a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will reveal, will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for, for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, We must wait patiently and confidently. And then listen to this next part, because I think this gets and moves us in to the experience that we're going to have in a few minutes of what does it look like to be people who maybe experience some form of exile? Maybe it's sin, maybe it's physical pain. You you care about something out there that is distorted and broken and not right. Paul says this in verse 26, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groans that cannot be expressed with words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows that the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's will. Verse 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for good. And by the way, we often think easy. We think successful. We think freedom from pain. It just simply says good. God works together everything for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes for for him. In that place of exile, in that place of displacement where you feel disconnected, we often wonder what is the first step? Where do we move in that place? And I think the first step is to simply talk to God is to simply name it out loud. And if you're new to the whole church deal and you're wondering about this God thing, there's nothing magical, there's nothing mystic about talking to God. God just simply wants to hear you say words to him in your head, out loud, written down. And the God who wants to hear you actually wants to talk to you as well. In that place of exile, God wants to say things to you. And so what we want to invite you to do here in the last few minutes, as we think about those places of feeling displaced in us, is to name them out loud. And here's a few different ways that you can do it. The band's going to play a couple of songs, and uh, you can do a few things. One is we're going to have our normal prayer boards. This is the way we do the prayers of the people at Crossview. And uh, there is a board for lament. And a lament is a place where maybe you see people who live in exile, something that is systemically broken in the world around us. I just want to write it down. And then there's requests, places where you just need to say to God, I am living in this place, and I just need to ask you for help. My son, my daughter is in this place, and I want you to bring them back home from exile. And then there's praises, where we can just say, yay, God. God did something good, and we want to praise him for that. So during these last two songs, and I know this is awkward, this is not normal. If you're a guest, it's not sort of our normal ending to the service, but we think it's a place that matters this morning. So please come on up during the last two songs, write down a prayer request, pray over something else, something that somebody else has written down. And then we also have our prayer team will be under the cross. If you want to be prayed over, prayed with, come on over under the cross, and they would love to just put a hand on your shoulder and pray for whatever you need prayed over. For some of you, you just want to sit in your seat, and we think that is great. Sit there, talk to God. Maybe the words of these last two songs are the simple prayer that you need today. God, I pray, Lord, that this would be a, um, a space similar to the story we read where an altar is built and people come at that time to encounter you, God. I pray that this would be that encounter for us this week that gives us strength and hope and encouragement, even though exile may be reality for whatever reason, that you are the God that wants to give hope. You are the God that wants to give us glimpses of home. We believe that you are good and loving. Help our unbelief, God. In this time, allow us to talk to you, allow us to freely say what we need to, and that you are a good and loving and big God. Who wants to hear and wants to talk? I pray this in your name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.